I'm going to start at Revelation chapter 10 this morning. We're going to move around the Bible quite a bit, particularly the book of Revelation, but we're going to go back and pick up some other pieces to try to get for you the full imaginary picture of what it's like to see Jesus today. What's he look like as he is reigning ascended at the right hand of the Father. And this has a lot to do with what he looked like before he became a man when he decided to look like something, which wasn't always, by the way. Um, but when he does, he, he tends to look like a man before he became a man. And he does this at different times. We'll touch on some of them. But they all kind of build a similar picture. He looks like a man, but he's always more than a man. And then we're going to see now Revelation chapter 10, page 1033, something that's definitely more than a man. Huh? I saw another mighty, it's a pretty spectacular word. It sounds weak in English, mighty. You think like almighty or, or really terrifying, right? Powerful. These all sound kind of weak to me. Um, but these are, uh, I saw a mighty angel. This isn't just a cherubim. This isn't just a seraphim. This thing is all surpassing in its appearance. And, and you know this because of what he looks like. He's coming down from heaven, okay, wrapped in a cloud. Angels don't do that. God wraps himself in a cloud. That's who wraps himself in a cloud in the Old Testament. Fire, cloud, and pillar, right? Coming down on Mount Sinai, all this kind of stuff. Entering the tabernacle. This angel's wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. Well, we just looked last week. The only place anybody's got a rainbow around him is the Almighty God high and lifted up in Ezekiel's vision. He sees him glowing like fire with a lightning in his eyes, right? Burnished bronze for legs. And there's a rainbow everywhere around. Well, now here it's on the head of this angel, and his face is like the sun. Today, with the smoke, you could probably look at the sun and get away with it, right? But, but most days, you're not going to look at the sun directly. Even, even if you're going to go see an eclipse, they tell you, you know, use the special glasses and all this kind of stuff, because you can't look at the sun. But that's just it. Uh, this is the most powerful light we can imagine is shining from this angel's face with a halo of rainbow all around him as he comes down and he lands with legs like pillars of fire. Again, straight out of Ezekiel's throne room right there. Yeah. He's got this little scroll in his hand. Okay, well, that's chapter 4 and, uh, and the rest of chapter 10 and some Ezekiel chapter 2, which we're going to do next week. I'll put that scroll in your back pocket, okay? He's got a little scroll open, though. It's not closed. It's open in his hand. Yeah? Uh, and he sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. All right, right there then, this angel is doing something cosmic. Cosmic. You got to think in terms of big archetypes. You know how the ancient religions are like, there's four elements, fire, water, earth, and wind. And if you're an avatar, you can harness these things and make... Things fly about, right? They make comic books about this stuff now. Uh, well, this is like the real version of that. The elemental reality of cosmology does involve, in fact, uh, fire, wind, uh, air, uh, so that's fire, air, water, and earth, biblically, but under something else. That's four things. There's three things that start, though, and that is heaven, earth, and, and sea. It starts there, as all of creation is either heaven, earth, or sea. Uh, even when the waters are above, 
kind of thing, right? So this is a this is a symbolic reality that this angel's in charge of everything. He's standing on the ocean, he, like Jesus walking on water, right? He's standing on the land, like Jesus walking out of the tomb, and he's got the crown of the rainbow on his head. This is not an angel. A pastor says angel, I, I know. Don't flip back, but in your head, flip back to chapters 2 and 3, where there's a bunch of letters written to little churches, you know, Pergamum and uh, Laodicea, and all these letters are written to the angel of the church. And while some want to maintain that these angels are like spiritual beings that like protect the church, um, it doesn't make sense because these angels are all being told to repent, which means that they're demons. And John did not write the book of Revelation to demons taking care of the churches. Like that doesn't make any sense. So you have to back up a little and realize the word angel in Greek does a lot more than what it does in English. Hallmark put a copyright on it in your brain, and now it's stuck there, and you can't get out of how Hallmark thinks angels are. Right? That, that's the trick, right? But, but the thing is that an angel is just a messenger with supreme authority. They speak for someone else. They're like an ambassador. And certainly God has heavenly angels, but he also has earthly messengers who he sends. So pastors are in fact a form of angel, if we just mean the word in Greek, messenger, right? And here now there's a spectacular messenger, not like the other angels that have been blowing trumpets, who shows up here to say that the final thing is basically done, right? Which should ring in, a, in your head a little bit like it is finished. It is finished. So can you see this angel standing on the sea and the land with the, the halo of rainbow around his head is actually Jesus dying on the cross? Can you, can you see that they're the same thing? Huh? You have to also see his death on the cross is his resurrection. It happened in time on different days. He's the same man. He's the same God. He planned the whole thing. He's still alive. Huh? So it's one reality for you now. Huh? And this is very much shown forth in this description of the angel again which gives him attributes that are only given to God. No one else in the Bible gets to have legs of burnished bronze, right? Uh, there's a statue that falls down with iron legs, yeah, but not burnished bronze. Bronze, uh, something that if you lived in any time before our own, you would have considered a weapon material. Largely what bronze is for is weaponry because it's like steel, right? It's, it's an alloy, two metals put together. It's super strong. And so if your legs are made of bronze and I take a spear and I stab you, guess what happens? The spear breaks. Yeah? So this is the idea here is you can't harm this guy. You just can't harm him. Yeah? And again, the rainbow around his head, we've been chasing that promise. I'm going to talk about that more today. But let's, let's key in on that other element of this man. His face, this angel, his face is shining like the sun. And we're going to scroll back to Matthew chapter 17. You have to flip a little today, like I said. Uh, Matthew 17, I'll have page numbers when I get there. Uh, Matthew 17 is page 822 in your Bible. Uh, it's the story of the transfiguration. So, so you know this story. Um, I just want to give you verse 2 at least to start here, where it says he was transfigured before them. The Greek is metamorpho. You can hear metamorphosis in that. He was transfigured. He was changed before them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. Moses and Elijah appear. There's terror. There's a cloud. Notice the cloud. 
right? He's clothed in the cloud. So you have these elements of God that before they show up as an angel in Revelation are clearly manifesting themselves in the man, Jesus Christ. So what I'm suggesting to you again is that this angel in Revelation is not an angel, but the ascended Jesus demonstrating in the book his power over everything that's going to happen next after the seventh trumpet blows. And the seventh trumpet, that's the end of the book. It's like five chapters, but it's the end of the book. What happens? Dragon and Michael in heaven. Beast out of the sea. Beast out of the land. Wait, who's standing on the sea and the land? Oh, he's in charge of all of this stuff. The harlot. And then, well, let's, let's jump to what happens after the harlot and the dragon get out of control. Uh, this will be Revelation chapter 19. So here we're going to get just more of a picture of this same glorious Jesus now that he's risen from the dead, what he is capable of doing, what he does when he wants to, what he will do at the end of time for sure. But I think it's important for you to see that when you know the rider on the right horse sends out his double-edged sword of his word, we don't have to wait for that. It's already here, right? The, the, the book is already here. So, uh, again, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, a picture of Jesus, the ascended Lord, in his return. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Diadems are crowns, right? Crown in with many crowns. Uh, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That's you. Huh? From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All of that there is just to give you one more edge of this picture of the ascended, incarnate, Son of God, now Son of Man, a new creation who is God and creation merged from whose body the whole new creation will be birthed, of which you are the first fruits by nature of your feasting upon his flesh and blood and believing that all of this is true. And when that sword comes shooting out of his mouth to strike, it strikes you and it wakes you up. It strikes you and it makes you alive. Even as you've experienced, it strikes others and it makes them angry. It makes them want to shut down. It makes them want to silence the debate. It makes them want to not talk anymore, right? Because it does divide the sword. It is that true. It's so true that if you disagree, you're wrong. And you're evil. And you're going to hell. <laughs> right? Like that's, that's a pretty important distinction between one thing and another. And that is the difference between Jesus, the God, who is man, our Savior, and all other attempts to escape this veil of tears and valley of death without him. Every other attempt will just end up in your grave with a de despairing spirit. Yes. So the right rider on the right horse there is not there so you, Christian, will despair, though. Right? He's there so you will know who fights for you, 
Who is the God that is on your side, coming with the hosts of heaven? And again, establishing his messengership over the entire creation by means of his great and precious promises, the rainbow itself on his head being a picture of all of them wrapped up in one moment. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. I'm going to add a few more things, but to do this, we're going to go back and we're going to run forward chronologically through a bunch of pictures. I'm not going to say as much. I just want you to think it's all one picture. And we're going to build this throne room of God into one picture where this angelic, but not angelic, this God man, Jesus Christ is reigning, but he's, he's there the whole time. Doesn't seem like it in Exodus chapter 24. This will be way back at the front of your Bible, page 65. Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 11, where uh, after the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, uh, after uh, Moses has been up at least once into the fire, uh, he's taken up with a group of leaders from Israel. And well, here's what happened. It kind of comes out of nowhere as a story. Um, 24 verse 12, excuse me, verse nine. Uh, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, that's Aaron's sons, uh, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, that's up Mount Sinai, and they saw the God of Israel. Uh, the Bible's pretty clear. You don't get to do this and live. You don't get to. So something's fishy. <laughs> something's going on. The God of Israel, you can't see. He has an ability to make himself seeable. And that, that happens here, kind of behind this. They see him. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. Does that ring a bell from last week? Ezekiel's vision. Yeah. Uh, like the very heaven for clearness, like the sky, right? And he, God, did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. He didn't kill him. Instead, they beheld God and they, they ate and drank. Now, I just want you to see that Moses saw this same picture. They talk about only the sapphire and the throne, right? But he sees it and it's going to get opened more and more as we go. We're going to jump to Isaiah chapter 6. A lot of time passes in history before we get to Isaiah chapter 6. You go over such really important seers, visionaries, as David and Asaph page 571, if you're trying to get there by page number. Um, David and Asaph, uh, who, you know, David is the king. Asaph is like his chief musician, who's also a prophet. And they write a lot of the Psalter. And they talk about things like that iron scepter that you heard mentioned a moment ago with the rider on the white horse. So there is an ongoing unveiling or, or epiphanying of the throne room going on throughout the prophecies of Israel where different prophets see more or less of it, but they all get a taste. And we know that from Psalm 2 where David, again, he sees the iron scepter. He understands what that's about. It's kind of a complicated symbol, so we'll leave it to the side. But we're skipping over all of those things to where it gets really obvious again, which is Isaiah chapter 6. It's his call. Uh, he has a vision of God, and in verse 1, it says, after talking about the time, uh, the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Now, you know it's sapphire now already, right? You know that there's fire around this thing. You know from last week with Ezekiel, there's wheels within wheels, there's a rainbow. You know that's all there. 
Um, Isaiah maybe doesn't quite see it. Maybe he doesn't, doesn't tell us. He talks about the robe, the train of his robe filled the temple. So whatever's going on at this point, God is cloaking what Isaiah sees. He's covering some of what he is. And yet there's so much that he's got to cover everything. <laughs> right. He can just barely let his glory shine through. Uh, you think maybe again of Moses being covered in the cleft of the rock and seeing God's backside, right? this kind of stuff. Um, so he sees this. He sees the seraphim in verse two. So these angels, we talked a lot about them last week. They're going to be here. When uh, Moses comes down from the mountain and they make the Ark of the Covenant and they make the tabernacle, they put seraphim there. They put cherubim there. They put angels there as statues to show what's really in heaven above. Here Isaiah sees the actual things in heaven above. And as weird as they are with their many wings and their bodies glowing like coals, the only piece I want you to focus on today is that two of their wings cover their face and they don't even get to see what you're going to get to see. They don't get to look at it, but you do. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool right there. So that's, that's the beginning of this throne room starts to open. Yeah, um, we're going to get it again in Ezekiel chapter one, which you skip over the book of Jeremiah and you can get to Ezekiel uh, chapter one. It'll be on page oh, I'm a little far back there, uh, page six hundred and ninety two. And again, we looked at this whole text last week, so I'm not going to take us through all of it again. I just want to zoom in on verses twenty six and twenty eight, uh, where. Above the expanse over their heads, that's these seraphim, these angels, right? Um, above them, there's this sapphire expanse that, that Moses and the elders saw. And above that, there is in appearance like sapphire a throne. And seated above the throne, the likeness of a human. Uh, you really hear the, the liberal tendencies of the ESV of a human in appearance. He's a man. He's obviously a man. Um, the likeness of a man is there. Right. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what, as it were, were his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness all around, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. There's a rainbow. So was the appearance of the brightness. So Ezekiel sees this same man, God, angel, Jesus on the throne, uh, and everything that was there before is still there, only there's added like fire explosions, right? Uh, and, and rainbows everywhere, and he's just shining with glory everywhere. Now, we're not going to go look at, but you can write down a couple of other passages now that if you want to study this week and kind of try to blow your own mind a little bit, take this picture of Jesus from Ezekiel and go put it into Joshua 5. 13 through 15. I'm not going to tell you what's there, but just go put it there, right? See what happens. Um, go put it in Daniel chapter 3, verse 25, or Daniel 10, 4 to 6. Those of you at the first service, we did look at that, okay? But read it again with this picture of Jesus we just looked at from Ezekiel imported into those other texts and see if it doesn't just kind of go into technicolor for you. Quite a bit, really. Yeah. Um, and then uh, from there, uh, we'll do this this way. I want to look at one text this way, Zechariah chapter 1, uh, a hard book near the end of the Old Testament. You know, uh, Zechariah Malachi is right after it. Uh, it's a long 
minor prophet. The minor prophets are called minor because they're short. <laughs> so it's a long, short prophet. And it's filled with stuff like Revelation where you're like, what? Two eagles carrying a woman in a basket and she keeps trying to get out and they keep shoving it down on her head. It's like whack-a-mole. And what's going on? It's got that kind of stuff in it, right? Well, here at the beginning, though, chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, we have a moment where you're very briefly going to see the angel of the Lord. And he's surrounded by a lot of other stuff, including other angels and Zechariah. But the angel of the Lord is going to be there, and it's not even going to describe him, except that he's in the middle of everything else that it describes. And everything else that it describes is an army of angelic men on red horses and sorrel horses and black horses. And this gets all the way to the horsemen of the apocalypse and, and Revelation uh, uh, 5 and following. But, but Jesus is in the middle of his great army. And what I want you to do is imagine he's not just some guy there. He's a guy on a white horse with legs like burnished bronze and a crown of rainbow upon his head and light shining everywhere as, as war, the angel war, comes and reports to him. All right, that, that's what's going on here. Uh, Zechariah 1, 8 uh, through 11. I saw in the night and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen and behind him were red, sorrel and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. There he is, right? On a white horse. As he's standing, he's beside his white horse. Rainbows, fires, just put all that stuff in there, right? The angel of the Lord standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, notice how he prays to God. Jesus prays to the Father. O Lord of hosts, how will you have no mercy? How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. Uh, you can read on on your own. It goes on to talk about why God's going to punish evildoers, right? But what I want you to see here is that these, uh, they call them, um, I'm going to lose the word, uh, theophany. There's your big Lutheran Latin word for the day. These theophanies of Jesus. God showing up, but not quite the way you'd expect, and looking more and more like Jesus as he comes to be incarnate in Bethlehem as he goes along, and yet showing this amazing power that we see on the Mount of, uh, of Transfiguration, bursting out, like it's all still there, yeah? but he veils it so he can die. You know, light of light begotten and all this. Um, okay, so let's keep going through uh, this picture of Christ in his power. Uh, we're going to go back to Revelation again now. Revelation chapter 1 where John gets his call. And it's, it's basically the same thing as Ezekiel's call and Isaiah's call. Only now, first, Jesus is not on the throne. He's just going to be actually standing on the ocean, uh, by the ocean talking to John. But then he will be on the throne uh, in a little bit too. So it's kind of like a both and thing, but it's all the same God. It's all the same symbols. Uh, Revelation 1, 12 to 16 
Uh, John's on this island and he hears a voice that says, right. And he turns, verse 12, he turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, Zechariah 4, if you want to try to look that one up later. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, Daniel 9, clothed with a long robe, Isaiah 6, with a golden sash around his waist, Daniel 10, right? The hairs of his head were white, like white wool. That's ancient of days talk. That's Daniel and Isaiah, um, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Uh, that again is, I think, Ezekiel, yeah? Although it's lightning there. Uh, his feet were like burnished bronze. Okay, well, that's Ezekiel again. Refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters, right? Like multitudes, uh, that was also Ezekiel, if I'm not mistaken. Could be Daniel. I, there's so much, I'm not keeping them all straight today. Uh, but they're all there, right? We just looked at all these things in other texts. In his right hand, uh, he held a, seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was shining like the sun in full strength. So to rewind back to that angel in chapter 10, like if you want to believe that's actually an angel, you know, Baptists are pretty clear about this, at least in one song they sing. I, I learned of this from Johnny Cash. Ain't no grave. You know this one? Ain't no grave going to hold this body down. It's not a bad song. And, you know, uh, I see you, Angel Michael. Put your feet on the land and see. Maybe it's Gabriel. Gabriel, put your feet on the land and see. You know, uh, the care is going to come home for me. It's, it's one of these spirituals. Um, so they, you know, Christians think this is an angel. They have in the past. You don't go to hell if you just think it's an angel. But what I, can you see how this angel ain't like any angel you ever saw? And he's doing all the stuff God does, including Jesus in chapter one, right? So, so maybe it's more like after mankind rises from the dead, we're kind of, we're more, we're more than what we were. And what Jesus is, we will be like him. And this is an image of it, yeah? Take that as some hope again with the crown of rainbow all around it. Um, the golden sash about his chest, this is going to be about royalty, uh, again, the burnished bronze we talked about, he's invulnerable. The roar of many waters, uh, no voice can outspeak his voice. No sound can silence him. When he speaks, your voice is silenced. You can try to talk through his voice. It won't work. If you've never been to an ocean with a real wave or to a, uh, a, a large waterfall, you know, I guess you could compare this to standing on the tarmac when the planes are about to take off, right? You can shout and you won't even hear your own voice. That's how loud his voice is when he wants to talk. All of this is good news. When he wants you to hear him, you have to listen. When people try to take you away from him, they can't, right? This is about his power to save. This is about the strength of his gentleness in controlling the good of all orders in order to restore you to his. Uh, powerful stuff. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, just turn the page. Gives you a little more. Remember, I always say he's going to be on the throne in a moment. We can do the same song and dance. Is this the Father? Is this the Son? Is it an angel? Is it Jesus? Now, if you see the Son, you've seen the Father. No one sees the Father and lives, but you come to the Son. You come to the Father through the Son, right? So here we have an image of the Son and his Godhead. It's going to be followed by an image of the Son and his, his humanity. Two images, one God, two natures, one God. Starting with chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, 
with one seated on the throne, right? Sounds familiar. You should see this picture pretty clearly. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. So he's made of shining gemstones again. And around the throne was the rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. That's pretty cool. Around the throne were 24 elders. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. And before it are seven burning torches, which are the seven spirits of God and a sea of glass-like crystal. So there, it's the same picture, right? This now is fully revealed, and, and part of you has got to be like, is, is that Jesus or not? I think it is, yeah? But then we have uh, chapter, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. As this guy on the throne, he's got a scroll in his hand, like the angel. Remember, the angel has a scroll in his hand, but the scroll in this hand, the guy on the throne, it's sealed, and nobody can open it. Until someone says, well, look, he can, right? That's who shows up in five verses six and seven. Um, uh, uh, six says, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Uh, so... I, Father-son relationship, surely a dynamic at work there, but also the two natures of Christ, that God alone is segregated from us, but in becoming man, dying, and rising again, he opens that relationship again. So the next time we see him, he's this almighty angel with an open book, and he says, eat it. That's next week. Eat it. Eat the book. Okay, we'll come back to that again. For the remainder of today... I think I've covered all of that. Uh, nope. One more text I want to look at, and then I'm going to tell you a story. They send us on our way home. Um, Revelation 21. And actually, I'm going to read. We have the time. I'm going to read a little extra here today. We're going to start at verse 9. So at the end of the book of Revelation, after all the sevens, seals, censors of wrath and trumpets, which are all different ways of telling the story of the fall of mankind and the salvation of mankind by Jesus dying and rising through epic symbols that make video games and tabletop games look like, like pretend and baby ideas by comparison. After all of this occurs and the rider on the white horse comes out and the dragon is cast into the fire and the books of judgment are opened and we who are written in the book of life by virtue of God's precious promises to us get to wake up and go somewhere. Where we go next that we often call heaven is described here as a city called New Jerusalem. And it's meant to be beyond imagination as it's written because again, we can't, we can't quite picture it. And yet I think you'll find the picture is incredibly beautiful. Then came, verse 9, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, 
three gates. Notice the four for all the earth, four gates, but then three of each gate, so the twelve. God, three, four, the earth, twelve, the church. The new world is the church that God runs. Truth. All right, going forward. Verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Remember those 24 elders, 12 sons of Jacob, 12 apostles, uh, 12 gates, uh, 12 uh, foundation stones. Verse 15, and one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. A later Ezekiel reference going on here. The city lies four square its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. We're picking up on these 12s again with thousands, right? Complete church. Yeah? Its length and width and height are equal. So it's either a cube or a pyramid. Uh, he also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Now, I'm going to leave all that aside. All these numbers are symbolic and real. And what they're trying to point out is just what a perfect structure this is. That's the idea here. Continuing on with the beauty of it, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. That's pretty interesting. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx. It goes on all the way to the end of the verse and definitely is a reference to the breastplate that Aaron wore whenever he entered the holy place as high priest. Uh, verse 21, the, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. That's a big pearl, man. That's a big pearl, big oyster. 12 pearls, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Which is to say... The city is the temple because you're the temple. The people are the temple. We are the temple. This city, it's already here, sitting beside you in the pew. We just still kind of have our old bodies on, you know? Uh, and, and so we're waiting for the revelation of the house. We're, we're kind of stuck in the tent at the moment, right? That's the idea here that really should drive us all to a tr tr terrific hope, a tremendous hope. To know that no matter how bad this tent gets, I got a city with foundations that can never be shaken. It's a pretty potent reality. And it's as near to you this morning as the words I speak that you believe and as the bread and wine that you're going to eat, which isn't just bread and wine, but is this same city coming down from heaven to go inside of you and to metamorphose, to change, to transfigure you with the rainbow and the lights and the goodness and the blood and all of it, yeah, deep down inside. Going on, verse 22, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. There'll be no sun. I, you know, until this sermon series, I think I always thought that was kind of sad. I was like, but sunsets, right? No sunsets. How can it be... <laughs> paradise without sunsets. Don't people go out and look at sunsets and worship it like it's God? Oh, wait a minute. Look at that. Uh, but what that shows is how little imagination I have. Because if God decides to take away sunset and replace it with light from himself 
that lights everything at all times. So we're going to get to it. There's no night. Why would that be worse? Why would that be worse? Why would that be more beautiful than a sunset? Maybe it's sunsets like all the time and there's no scorching heat. Think about it that way, right? I like the moon too, but it's just going to get better. That's, that's the point. Nothing gets worse. It only gets better. Yeah? So then, again, by its light, that's the lamb. That's Jesus. By the light shining from his flesh, the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And why do you have gates in the city? Somebody, you got to answer this one today. Why are there gates in the city? Keep people out. What kind of people? Evil. Thieves would be kind of the starting one, right? Thieves. People are going to attack, right? Uh, So when do thieves do their deeds? At night, right? Evil people do their deeds in darkness. God's taking that all away so that in his city, the street will always be safe. You will not have to worry about a pickpocket anywhere. If you do now, I suppose it's kind of strange, but you get the idea, right? It's a, it's a place where the king's law is the king's gospel, <laughs> where all the word is true at all times. Yeah? Never shut, no night. Verse 26, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. You ever heard it said, like, I'd rather go to hell because all the cool people are going to be there. You ever hear that? Anybody? Am I alone? Okay, a couple of you. Yeah, right. Okay. Did you think, that's the stupidest thing I ever heard? Or did you get kind of beat for a moment? You're like, oh, Bon Jovi's going to be in hell. Maybe there'll be a party there, right? Like, if, if you are able to be moved off of your confidence by that kind of argument, let me suggest you need to do some push-ups with your faith, all right? Because that kind of argument's stupid. Whatever they did in this life that seems so cool now will invert into radical, destructive, everlasting torment in the life to come. They're going to try to play whatever guitar they thought they cursed God with, and they're going to find out they cursed God with it. And so God cursed them. And whatever they play, I mean, movies, here we go. Do you see uh, uh, Back to the Future? First one, you remember, he's playing the guitar and his hand starts to fall away and it like doesn't make music and he's looking. Okay, that's just the beginning of hell. This is all for me to emphasize that heaven is a great party. It's a tremendous feast. And the music will be beyond your imagination because the harmonies and the chords and the chorus of all creation will be singing with us at one great momentous forever now. It will all be as it shall be, even though we will have days without night. Time will come and go. We will move and walk and live. I hope to farm. I hope to explore. I'm definitely going to surf if it's allowed. Yeah? It's going to be amazing, this place. Well, how can we sing to God at all times and also surf? Just imagine your life now only without the thorns, where you get up in the morning and I hope you read some Bible and you sing to God. And then you go in your day and you toil, but it's not going to be toil. It'll be building. It'll be growing things. It'll be making and sharing. And then at the end of the heat, whatever that means, we're done making and sharing with each other. Now we go up and together we praise him one more time tonight before bed. What a life. It feels good to walk uphill to Jerusalem. It feels great to ride down back. I don't know, but I do know. It's hope incarnate in a story that can't die. And when it goes into you, you can't die either. I want to close uh, with the story. Um, <laughs> I, I, I really, it's like, it's, it's at the point where I'm like, God, you need to stop. 
If you don't stop, I'm afraid of what's coming next. And it's because I don't believe in like miraculous portents. I don't think that if I have to make a decision, like let's say someone extends me a call as your pastor to be a pastor somewhere else. I don't think I'm supposed to like pray really hard and then like stare at the sky for three days and wait for a sign. I, I don't believe that. I believe I'm supposed to pray about it for sure. And then I'm, the sign is that I got the call. So the sign is God wants me to decide whether I should be here or there, and I have to make a decision. And frankly, it's a rejection of duty to push that off on how the clouds were this morning. Yeah. That said, there ain't a rainbow that happens. Jesus didn't send it. And every single one, he sends it as a fulfillment of his covenant promise to not destroy you. And so every time you see a rainbow in the sky, it really is a sign from God. It actually and authentically, biblically, scripture alone is a sign from God that he loves you today. So you don't need to worry about it. And you're surrounded by the hordes of hell and they're about to burn you at the stake. Hallelujah, I see a rainbow. I'm going to die now, go to heaven, yay. It doesn't matter. The rainbow's there to give you confidence. And where this has just blown my mind is that the day I started this whole thing, a week ago, two weeks ago now, when we got the rainbow out of Noah, I went home, I had a barbecue, a couple of you came over, and what do you know, it rained, and <laughs> that was a rainbow. The day we started, a week later, Sunday again, evening, another rainbow, a whole week, double rainbows. I thought I was done. Then I went on this trip down to Indianapolis to speak to some people, uh, they, uh, a group of uh, pastors and lady concerned about the synod, uh, and I talked about integrity with them. And on the way back, I came home a day early, and I think I'll just brave the traffic, you know, Indianapolis to Chicago's or through Chicago. Indianapolis or Rockford is through Chicago, right? Unless you go around by going to Toledo first. If you've driven that way, I wasn't ready for that one. Uh, and, and my maps was ready for it, but unfortunately construction had made it so the exit to Toledo to get to the easy way around Chicago wasn't present. And I found myself watching the road that I'm supposed to be on just flying by while I'm, st I'm stuck in bumper to bumper under a sign that says South Chicago. Oh man, an extra hour and a half there. Well, Jesus... If you want me to have a little extra time in Chicago today, I'll take whatever you want to send me. About 20 minutes later, the tornado alarm went off on my phone. Tornado in downtown Chicago? Well, they've been doing some wicked things, haven't they now? Man, amen, right? Wouldn't be past God to just set one down and cause some destruction. So I'm driving along and I'm like, well, Jesus, what am I worth to you? What is this one righteous man who wants to go back home, take care of his family, and preach the gospel? What am I to you? As, again, beep, 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 it's going off. I'm listening to music. I don't know. But the sky overhead is nasty. I'm like, I'm under it right now. Right? And it's not funneling, but it's ugly. And the rain is there on and off, up ahead and behind. And then suddenly I'm up on a bridge, and it's all open and light. And I saw the biggest rainbow I have ever seen, not an arc, a beam from the sky to a block in South Chicago hitting the ground where the water was shining light back up into the sky. This thing had to be half a city block in, in size. It was huge. I was driving again, third lane over, and I'm like almost about to veer across traffic to get into the exit lane to go down and like stand in it. And I decided that would be imprudent. So I kept driving instead. I nearly got hit 15 minutes later by a truck that crossed three lanes doing the opposite thing. Anyhow, I'm screaming, as Jesus Christ lives, that's a rainbow in South Chicago. Jesus Christ loves Chicago. Jesus Christ loves the people in Chicago. Jesus Christ is sending me back to Rockford. 
with a promise. Special promise? Ah, it's the same one, right? It's not a different promise. Does it mean that if, in fact, God sends some wrath against this country, say nuclear bombs, that Chicago will be spared? No, it doesn't mean that at all. I didn't say that it means nothing bad will ever happen in South Chicago again. It means that God still cares. And our prayers are still heard. And I, I'm pretty willing to bet there were 7,000 other people praying for that tornado not to hit with me. It wasn't just me saying, please, not today, Jesus. That's hope, not terror. That's fear that moves you forward, not backward. So then the next day I get a text from uh, a guy named Kevin. Kevin, if you ever go to one of our pro-life events, uh, the Rockford Family Initiative has around the area, especially down at the abortion clinic, um, you'll, you'll get to know Kevin or see Kevin. He's a large man who he hunches a little white hair and a big white mustache, big heart. He's been a pro-life advocate in the area for a long time. Well, he reached out to me. He said, Pastor Fisk, we're doing this protest outside of the library. Uh, they've canceled the event, but they're doing the digital event. Uh, would you come and be one of several people to speak some words to the crowd? And I said, I've been waiting my whole life. <laughs> yes, I will do that. But I didn't know what to say. I was really concerned. It's, it's a big moment to say something. What's the right word to preach it certainly isn't Hail Mary full of grace, right? Um, you know, the canon from the Catholic Church, who I respect, he kind of went that direction with his talk. Um, I didn't want to do that, but I didn't just want to be like, law, gospel, be a Lutheran or else. I mean, that's not what anybody needed to hear either, right? So this is all leading toward, you know, I, I get up uh, Friday morning. I know I've got to go. First thing I'm going to do is pray like I normally do. And then I'm going to, I'm going to work on thinking about, praying about what I'm going to say tonight. And, you know, we've got this, retreat center, burgeoning men's school next door to the house where I have my office now. And every morning, if I can, I, I walk over there and I have a little wagon I've, I've put together to carry my books. I got too many books and my coffee and all these things. So I, I get everything together and I start walking over and I look at my phone real quick and it's like gonna rain right now? Doesn't look like it. I walk out, starts to rain for sure. And right in front of me across the garage that is my office, horizon to horizon, a rainbow, and then the spectral rainbow above it. And I, I tweeted, I think God wants me to think he loves me. Because it's true. And someone said, don't be a charismatic. On Twitter. Yeah? And I said back, I, I, I'm not. And I'm not going to be. I wrote a book about it. It's called Broken. You can read it. I think it's evil to be charismatic. But, but when God gives you a sign, rejoice. In the name of Jesus, amen.